Well, if you didn't notice, we moved all your chairs closer because I can't see you, so you all came forward. Oops, sorry, wrong mic. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to just start out, first of all, and just thank you, DJ and Jasmine, and for being able to let us share that moment with you, and thank you, church, for letting uh, us all kind of celebrate that together. Uh, real quick, if you have, are new here and it's your first time here, you were going to be in a series that you haven't been in in the last four weeks. You do not have to worry about that. The book of James is what we're studying, and we're in week five. Every single week is just kind of unveiling a new truth for believers. Why we pick James is because it's one of the best books to just read and, and, and just digest of just everyday Christian life. A lot of times when we read scripture, it can be like, okay, what does this mean theologically? James isn't a, a deeply theological book. James is a pastoral book. He's writing to his people. And their people, if, if, if you don't know the context, they're not in the best situation. Their life has been tough since they became a believer. And I know that it's, it's sometimes disconnected for us as, as, I think, Western believers to just, uh, when we become a believer, things, things aren't as like a contrast of like, now you're out of culture. Now you're out of our family. Now you, you are losing your job. This is what was happening to these people. And James is writing to them, don't give up. Don't quit. I think sometimes scripture reminds us of, uh, of where we will take our situations we're going through and think they're the worst possible, and, and it's a reminder that it, it, it's not as bad as what these guys had, and James is telling them, hold on. What we did is we looked at, first of all, James is asking the people. He's asking his church, I need you to see your circumstances differently because of the circumstances coming around them are hard. They're getting persecuted. They're getting beat. They're getting imprisoned. Paul was a part of all of this happening. And their times are tough. And he's saying, don't let your circumstances determine your strength of your faith. Let your faith see your circumstances differently. In week two, we talked about seeing others differently. Because usually when pressure starts happening, I don't know if you have this in your marriage or relationship, but when things are kind of chaotic, do you notice that you just tend to fight a little bit more? No? Okay. Well, this happens in other people's marriage. And so when things are difficult, people could, tension happens, and you're like, why are we even arguing? And this is happening within this church. And so he's trying to let them know, do not See people as your enemy. Do not see yourselves as better. Do not let this tension come into the church home. Week three, we talked about seeing your faith differently. Not just an accessory, but it's really out of your life of faith is how you conduct your life. And then last week, we talked about speech. Because when you are born again, you are learning a new language of the kingdom. It doesn't mean religious terms. We had this one guy who was uh, a pastor on a staff that I was with, and uh, he, was, um, he was very verbally uh, like good about religious words. And so I'd say, how are you doing? And this is what he'd say back to me. He'd say, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. And I'd be like, okay, but no, like, are you doing okay? Oh, I'm doing blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm like, Great. I guess we got that you're blessed. You know what I mean? So he was good with the words. Uh, I mean, sadly, he was having a moral failure at the time. He was telling me he was blessed and highly favored. And I was like, I don't think that's going to turn out like a blessing for you. And it didn't. But so it's the thing of like James is saying, don't be a type of people who say one thing and are another. Be truthful and change the way our words are towards others. James 3, 13 through 4, 10 is what we're going to look at today. We'll read it all, but it, it reads in chunks, but it's just a section to itself. And James is going to ask us to do something different. He's going to ask us to see what wisdom looks like in our life, and maybe even asking us to see wisdom differently. It's so easy nowadays to find information. It's so easy. If it's like a friend of mine who's here. We were talking that Google has ruined all debates. You know what I mean? 
where it's like it used to be fun, and then you'd be like, okay, I can try to beat you with persuasion, even though my facts are wrong. Anybody like that? And then they're like, well, let's just Google it. And you're like, no, I don't want to play anymore. You know what I mean? Like, you know you're wrong, but, but it, everything's accessible. But that's not what the Bible's talking about with wisdom at all. Even if it's just life experiences, that's not what the Bible is going to talk about. And that's not what James is going to talk about when it comes to wisdom. He's going to talk about it in a different way that maybe you haven't thought of. Maybe you haven't seen wisdom divided into two things in this way. So he's going to say, hey, there's two ways of life. There's two ways of thinking and being, and you can only choose one. You cannot choose both. I think it, we want it all, don't we? We want to live our Christian life. We want to feel good and secure in our salvation. But we also want to live in a way that is contrary to what God is calling us to live like. Or we want to speak contrary to what God is calling us to speak like. Or we want to see things differently than God is calling us to see things. It's, it's James is kind of forcing us to a really hard place to make a difficult decision. That's what you've been feeling as we've been going through one by one of these areas of practical living in Christian life. And now he's going to put us to a place of making a decision. Where do you want to live? What camp do you want to live in? And he uses the word wisdom to kind of bring us there. On paper, when you read this section of James, it's very cut and clear. We could read it and go, oh, on paper, it makes sense. I don't want that kind of life, and I want that kind of life. It makes sense. Perfect. I choose wisdom. But it, it's not really that way because the reality of Christianity doesn't line up so easily. How many times are you faced with a decision and you're inwardly wrestling inside and you, hit, you feel conviction saying, no, 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 no. This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not from above. This is this is worldly and it's wrong. You feel the pull inside. So we can't just say, oh, this is an easy choice to make. Not at all. James is asking us to go even much deeper to the foundations of what wise decisions look like. And we're going to kind of jump into that a little bit today. But it's going to be asking the questions, do I want the world's gifts and what it has to offer with its wisdom? Or do I want God's gifts and what it has to offer in his wisdom. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. I ask that you just be with us during this passage, God, that these verses leap off of the screen or pages to our heart, that you do a work inside some of us, God, that maybe some of us who've kept things closed for so long are evaluating something big in our life, God. And I pray that by the time verse four or chapter four, verse 10 happens, that many of us in this room are really at a place of openness and humility to receive your wisdom. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this message, The Way of Wisdom, and it's it, James is going to be forcing this question. And I wanted to throw the question out early because I thought it might be good to kind of stew on while we're going through this. And the question is, is what, you'll know it when it takes shape, what wisdom will you choose? And we have a choice, but what wisdom? You cannot have both. It's like serving two masters. We talked about that in a previous series. You cannot have them both. You can must choose one. So let's start out with James 3, 13, 4, uh, 13, um, 313, sorry, that first. He asked this question. It's kind of a really tough question. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's a funny question because I think it's a baited question because he's, he's going to ask this question. It's like this. If I was to say, who in here loves the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul? Stand up and let's just, let's just see. Who does? Everyone is going to stand up. Right? Everyone's going to be like, well, I love the Lord. And this is what he's doing. He's setting them up in a beautiful way. Because he's saying, who's wise in understanding among you? And then what he's going to say is, oh, oh, you, you guys, you're pointing to so-and-so. He's wise. Oh, you think you're wise? Well, now we're going to find out if you're wise. So he kind of sets the stage to invite them into, I don't want to say his trap, but it feels like it in a good way. 
He says, by his conduct, now remember, he's been hitting works, he's been hitting faith and works together, and we can't just say you love God, you've got to live like you love God. So by his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It's such a good statement he opens up with before he starts to really tear into the very soul of people, and these people in particular, because there's been a lot of problems happening within the church. And so he wants to address them this way. He's going to ask a few questions by making some statements. And his and the questions are going to be like this, this first one. He's going to really ask them, which wisdom do you serve? Which wisdom do you display in your life? Which wisdom, because I could tell by how you're living your life and conducting your life, which wisdom, which foundational truth do you ascribe to? So which one displays in your life? He says in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, now jealousy is not always a bad thing. God, the Bible says God is jealous after us. And he'll say it again later in the passage. What he means by this bitter jealousy is the destructive jealousy, the, the jealousy that's of envy, the one that sees your neighbor get a new car and be like, I don't know how they afford that. That's ridiculous. Honey, we need a new car. Like, you know what I mean? It's this envy that drives us. And some people would say that that's what makes, I think, even our culture so great is we're striving to innovate. But a lot of it is due to jealousy that drives a lot of the things that we do. So he's talking about that type of jealousy. Oh, they get more praise and honor in church. I want that. Or I want that seat, so I'm going to work my way to get to that seat. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, these two are the most toxic combination against the kingdom, and they will destroy churches. So this is why he only is going to work with these two. He realizes it. It's jealousy, this envy inside of us, and then this selfish ambition to get it done. Now, note that both of these are hidden sins until they manifest. So he's going to deal with the heart. Because the envy you can conceal. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that is a great car, Bob. Or heat, Bob. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, can, you can hide it with a smile. Your selfish ambition, people might not know that, oh, this is all working out for your good, not anyone else's good. They, they can... Until it manifest, He says that selfish ambition in your heart. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This means this. Don't, you cannot walk around. You should not walk around with undealt envy, undealt selfish ambition, and go around and boast about the Lord. It's false. It'll be false to what the truth is. And he's going to get to it in a minute, but he's ultimately saying, like, for, it's, it's like somebody who's really secure, if somebody is very secure, and I, am, I wouldn't say I'm the most secure, I, I've had times where I start kind of talking about something because I want people to see something because I'm very insecure about it. Don't you see how good I am at this? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I do it at home all the time when I clean. I'm like, look what I've done. <laughs> if I cook a meal, everybody, everybody come down. I made something, right? So I, I'm not very secure in that, and I need to brag, I boast. But he's saying here, listen, if you're secure in your faith, and you know who you are and to whom you belong, we don't have to put on the charade. We don't have to di dive into those areas of destructive sin. In the uh, ancient world, and you probably know this with the Greeks, they started doing theater in a way, and how they, how they would, uh, and this is where the term hypocrite, hypocrite comes from, is these actors, is because they would mask their face. And when they were playing to an audience, in order for the audience to really see their facial expressions, they would put on a mask that was like, he's sad. Oh, and they'd be like, oh, that character must be sad. And they put on a face where he's, he's really happy and joyous, and they'd switch the faces, right? So this is a, a thing he's pointing to that these people will be familiar with is don't be someone who inside is something, but on the outside, everybody else just perceives as different. Don't be hypocritical in your heart. He says, this is not wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly. It's unspiritual. 
And he's going to use a word that might throw you off. It's demonic. And we're like, demonic? But he, he means it in the sense of this is something that is of sin. It's something that the devil celebrates, this type of wisdom, this earthly wisdom. It says, and for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This is quite a statement from a guy. He could have picked a lot of other things. Why did he pick these two? They, they are, if we really look down at the core, they are what can easily corrupt the inside of somebody and drive them to things that they never thought. And, and they're the things that can be hidden, and that's why I think he's po poking at them a little bit. It, it grows more insidious in the dark. Envy, jealousy, a bitterness, right? or selfish ambition that, that, that is driven by something other than grace, love, mercy, right? Jealousy in, in antiquity was talked about like this several hundred years before James even wrote this by a guy named Socrates, and he talked about envy in this sense. He, he titled it a really interesting uh, phrase. He said, it's the ulcer of the soul, envy. It eats you. It pains you. It hurts you inside. Aristotle said it's called a certain sorrow. No matter what, it will certainly come and it will be a certain sorrow. And it hurts. And it pains. Worldly wisdom says this. And I, I agree with this. Worldly wisdom says that the more that you have, the more that you can gain, the more whatever makes you more real to the world. It, and I know this may sound weird because you're like, well, I am real just because I don't have a lot of stuff. But in a lot of people's mind, the more I can be and people see me, the more real I am. And the less I have, the less worth I have, the less real I am to the world it's a sad state, and I think it's a problem that James is trying to adjust, address within his people, but I'm not going to lie, it's very relevant for our day and, and our time right now, is I'm somebody if I'm seen. My identity is so attached to having more, being more successful, doing more things, uh, one-upping an another, getting to a different place. It makes me whole, real. It's a closed system of limited resources when we live this way that is driven by envy and, and, and fueled by selfish ambition. You felt it in your life. It doesn't escape the church. It, it doesn't, it, it's everywhere. It's, it's a system that God came to destroy because it's a system which he says is demonic. It is one of everybody get what they can for themselves because there's limited resources. But that's not heaven. God is unlimited in his resource of favor, blessing, love, and mercy. But the world works in limited resources. The logic of envy demands competition for scarce resources. So he's coming right at it really hard. And James is letting his people know, when you are this way, when you have this hidden in your heart, trust, just trust me, it's a trap. A trap from the enemy. My daughter used to have this hamster, and I don't know if you've ever had a hamster in your house before, but they are the most annoying creatures on the planet, and I don't know why we ship them over here. But these hamsters, and I, I didn't understand why they run so much on the wheel, but then I looked up in their natural habitat, they run like three to six miles a day. And so they're just nonstop going, go, 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 go. And I would just watch them, and I'd be just like, that poor guy, he's just like, where are you going? You got nowhere to go. You're going nowhere. And James is saying, to be in that cycle of the world is just an endless cycle in a wheel with no true satisfaction, and you arrive nowhere. It's a cycle of dissatisfaction, and it's a wasted life. And so he's telling his people, guys, I know times are tough, pressure's coming in, but the very worst thing you can do is give in to this appetite where you become envious you become bitterly jealous, and you're beginning to be selfishly ambitious. The Bible says that we are not in the world, or we are in the world, but not of the world. I think that's a fascinating statement because it's really hard to think of it. It's like, yeah, I'm in the world, but you're not of it. You are a new creation. You are something different. 
You are in this world that works in this cycle, but you are not of it, so you don't have to participate in the cycle. I was, um, when I grew up as a kid, uh, we grew up on a lake, and my parents had got uh, canoes. And if you've ever been in a canoe, it's, it's for the young, it's not for the old. And I wouldn't get in a canoe now. And it was just like, just such a deal just to stay in so you don't flip. This, this is a canoe working exactly how it should work. God, what he says is, listen, when you're, this is how it looks, if you can imagine what he's meaning by this passage. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You are in the world, but you're not of it. You're not of the water. You're not in the water. You are just in the water, but you're not of it. You're in the canoe. And this is the problem James is seeing within his church is so many people are professing that they are in the world, but they're not of it. But literally, when he's looking at their life and having them examine their life, it looks more like these photos right here, right? Put these next ones up. This is what it looks like. It's like, I'm in the world. I got my canoe. I got the right words. But you're in the world. And you're of the world. You've allowed it into your life. You're participating in this cycle. And sometimes it's with you and your friends. And that sometimes whole churches are participating this way. Where they're just participating in the world cycle. I talked about this a, little, a couple of weeks ago about how the um, medieval churches and then even all the way up into the 1800s used to do, you bought your seat at church. You know what I mean? So depending on how rich and prominent you are and the poor people, they just sat in the back. That's not the church. That's, this is the opposite. that's the opposite of what James is trying to get his people to realize, but that's a natural reaction of people when they bring the cycle of the world into the church, and that is a canoe buried underwater. It is not what being in the world but not of it means. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above, this is good, because now he tells us what wisdom of above, from above looks like. It is first pure, right, then peaceable and gentle, and open to reason, and full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. I could teach a message on each one of these, but I don't think we should. But first and foremost, what does he start with? It's pure. I always find passages like that in Scripture, because weird, because when they, when, when scripturally, when they typically list something, it's going to be in first and foremost of, of importance of order, unless there's a closing point that's trying to be made. But he does it this way, first pure, and then you start thinking about that. What does that mean, first pure? In the temple, you would go before God beforehand, you would purify yourself before you could even be in the presence of God. He's saying, hey, you've got to get your heart right first. So if you're going to have wisdom from above, it takes a heart that's pure. And then he says, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Next time you're in a disagreement with somebody, next time you're struggling with uh, uh, an envy or selfish ambition, you should read this first and be like, I don't know, uh, are my thoughts towards Bob with this new car peaceable? Probably not. Are they, are they, are they gentle? No. Are they open for reason? Nah, I don't know. Are they full of mercy, good fruits? No, they're not. They're not secure. They're not, they're not peaceable. The NIV commentary on this section in particular had a really good statement. I want to read it. It says, for James, the writer says, however, only one wisdom is true. The wisdom that comes from above and measures reality by the God who is the giver of all good and gifts and alone is able to save. I love how they said it. This, this, this wisdom, it measures the reality. That's how we see life through God's reality, when we take on wisdom from above. How are you measuring reality? With wisdom from above or the world's wisdom? How are you measuring your life, your success? You know, how are we doing it? Are we, is it from the wisdom from above or is it from the wisdom from the world? Verse 18, it says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you were the one to de-escalate and seek peace. But man, it's amazing what happens when someone can be the first to do it. When someone can seek peace when we're in the middle of warring or even in our heart. They might not even know we think the things that we do, but to come to peace in our heart and lower the weapons, right? Even though they may not see them in our heart. But I think it's godly wisdom and shalom is what he wants to bring into your situation. Shalom, we've said before, is this term that, of peace that is basically the universe is in God's shalom. Everything's in order and everything is working like a beautiful song. Every instrument is playing and everyone's on the same note. And that is exactly how God created it. So when God says he's come to bring peace, right, he's bringing his shalom. And so when we are people who sow peace, right, we will be those who make peace. Another question he's going to ask. So he just asked us, what was the question? Which wisdom do you display? The next question by some statements he's going to make is, is are your desires in the right place? This is when we have to dig deep and we have to be honest with ourselves. Where are our desires and ambitions? Verse 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? So he's already got the answer, that your passions are at war within you. Your passions. And you can look at it, it could be your desires or even it can be your insecurities. It could be all of these things that are driving you forward. But, but they're at war within you. That's what usually causes quarrels and fights amongst you. I've had people ask me, I think we've been uh, uh, having an elder board, at least with Soundhouse before we did the merger, uh, and I'd have people ask me throughout the years, like, oh, man, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when you guys are going at it in the eldership. And I'm like, what? And they're like, don't you guys fight over stuff? Fight? What? Right, guy, have we ever fought in there? No. Like, I just always am puzzled by it. Like, what kind of elderships are you seeing where there's fighting going on? Like, it's just not even a thought of what we have. And I hope that it's because we're seeing we're not at war within ourselves about the church. We don't have these, I don't believe, selfish ambition. The much as we can keep that in control, our passions are for the church. But it always cracks me up. I'm like, I don't know. I can't even imagine yelling or fighting with any of our elders, you know? Well, Larry, maybe, but then nobody else. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about when you have the inner war and the inner struggle. You've had it in your life, and he's saying, this is where it comes from. You're at war within yourself. You've got to settle it with peace. You've got to make peace with what's happening inside you desire, now listen to this. This is pretty harsh. I don't believe this. He's speaking to people who've murdered, but he's quoting definitely uh, the Ten Commandments. You desire to have, so you murder. And I don't know if whoever is reading this letter to the church is like, okay, well, who's the murderer here? I don't know, but I don't think that's what he means. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Meaning this, it's just, it's just, it's just I want selfishly, so I take selfishly. This isn't a giving an atmosphere that's happening within the church. He says that you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spent, you spend it on your passions. I, I, this is such a good check, a gut check of how do we pray? Like, how are we praying? I think it's good to ask. I used to pray for games when I was a kid. We had to, before our games, they bring the pastor in and we pray before our games. They God, just help us beat the other team. <laughs> and we'd be like, oh, Lord. And then they would be praying because they were a Christian school as well. God, help us beat this team. And then God's like, I don't even know. Like, I don't. <laughs> it's, it's like, what are we praying for? Like, what's driving us? God, help me that I get this job promotion over this, uh, uh, this idiot John because he doesn't know what he's doing. I just, look, I'll be good, God. Just give it to me. But is it driven by something else? Right? 
What are our prayers about? He's, he's asking them, man, and because you ask wrongly, you don't receive, and then you want to then enter the world system, which is selfish ambition and envy, and you take. He uses the extremes. I know, murder and, and coveting, but still, he wants to make his point, and he's going to remind us, how do we pray? What are we praying for? Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these worries, because he's talking about anxiety during that section of, past, of the scripture in Matthew. All the fear and anxiety and the worries, where am I going to eat? How am I going to live? And he's saying, oh, just seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things that you want for your life will be added to you. And God delivers on his promises. But we have to come with a clean heart and a heart that the motives are right. Or God, he says, he will not answer your prayer. And you're like, no, no, God's supposed to answer my prayer no matter what I ask. God, I just hope that I can be with, oh, Tim, because he's such a handsome, wonderful man. Bring us together, Lord, because I'm so lonely and I need somebody. Like, that, God's hearing it, but I'm sorry. It's, 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 there are prayers being asked of God that he is not answering. He's saying that's left you into a depravity, into a depraved state. And so now you're going to enter the world system to get it. Get your prayer life in the right place. And all those things will be added unto you. So are your desires in the right place? He's, he's forcing us. Uh, huh, I don't know. What wisdom do I display? Are my desires in the right way? And then he's going to ask this other question in this next section, which is, who do you look to? Where are your eyes? Where are you looking for salvation, help? Now, he starts this off with a real tough one. He just says, you adulterous people. Now, that's not making friends, okay? That's not going to make a church happy. Like, you are adulterous people. And people are like, oh my God, I don't feel good here. Let's try that church down the road. That's better because they're nice. Like, it, this is a tough statement. But what he's doing is he's now bringing deep conviction. They know more than we know in their history at the time of, of this church, probably at this time. They're very familiar with the Old Testament writings. They're very familiar with God's like uh, push and pull to, of, of God acting as a spouse who is constantly after Israel, the unfaithful spouse. Still loving, still honoring the commitment, and the spouse just will not stop committing adultery. There's a couple, Isaiah does a good job of this. One of the best uh, ones is Hosea, which is almost like a metaphor in a way. I'm not sure if it's exactly real, right? If this is a real figure, I'm not sure. But the story that's laid out is this prophet who's to marry a prostitute who will not stop leaving him. And he has to go searching for her in the streets and pay her debts because she's been brought into slavery. It's embarrassing. But I, I love it that he says, listen, don't be adulterous people where God is constantly looking for you, going, what about our covenant? You're constantly going to the world, into the world system. Jeremiah uses the same language, this unfaithful spouse language. You're breaking the covenant. You're, you're not upholding this. You keep going back to your ex, the world. Why? When you fell so deeply in love here. He says, do not be friends with the world. Do, do, not, uh, do, you not, sorry. do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever is wise to be a friend, therefore, whoever wishes to be, wow, to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I used to read that passage, and I used to, the first thing I thought when I read this, and I don't know if you read it like this, but I used to read it like, I've got to get rid of all my non-Christian friends. That's usually how people quote it. You cannot be friends with the world. And you're like, well, my friend, he's not a Christian, so he's of the world, uh, so I can't be friends with my friend. No, that's not at all what it means. That would go against our oikos principle that we, we teach here at the church, which is to, no, 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 you have so much influence with your friends. That's who you are called to be a minister to and witness. So it's, it, just so you know, it's not meaning that you need to separate from the world, live on a compound, and then burn all the books but the Bible. That is not at all what it means. 
He's going to get into it in a second. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship in antiquity, if you, if you look up the word in particular and the way James is trying to use it, it, it it's this, and I'm just going to pull a direct quote from um, its translation. It's a friendship is someone who sees things the same way and someone who shares the same outlook. So he is saying, you cannot be friends with the world and see the world's cycle as good and the outlook that the world promises as good because then you will be at odds with God because he's breaking that cycle and he's using the church to do it. He says, or do you suppose that it is, uh, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns, talking about God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us. God himself deeply desires relationship with you. And why does he have to chase us? He, we, we are in covenant with God, and yet we still run. God's saying he deeply desires that. But I love this for anybody who feels like maybe that this is impossible or they feel guilty or like maybe just giving up. He says, oh, but he, God, gives more grace, right? Therefore, it says in Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He's after you. His grace, this is the beauty, that's the gospel right there. His grace is sufficient for you. But in light of that grace, like why continue to go back to the cycle of the world of selfish ambition and envy that produces strife and destruction? When he uses the word proud, he opposes the proud. This translation, is, it's in most translations. The better translation, honestly, would be the word arrogance. In this context, it, and let me read it. It says, is, arrogance here is the selfish aggrandizing manifestation of envy that creates, the des, that creates the desire to have and that will stop at nothing to acquire what it seeks. That's the type of like, oh, he opposes that type of pride, that arrogance. I'm going to stop at nothing to get it because it makes me happy and this is what I want. And so he will only give grace to the humble. And the last thing is this, and this is where it gets really practical. If you're going through and you're going, huh, I don't know if I ascribe to that type of wisdom, but maybe I dabble in that cycle a little bit. Or maybe I'm just all in in that cycle. I had no idea that I am someone who is fully caught into that. And God is calling me out of that. He gives us something we can do. And the next thing he's going to state for them is what you must do, which is verse 7 in chapter 4, submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, before God. Sub submitting is, you know, it's kind of a weird, weird word nowadays. This, this, this is a surrender to God. And, and if you're here today and you're like, man, I have, I've been, I'm that boat that's kind of half full, I got half the world in it and half not. I'm just paddling. It, it, it might be time to, instead of carrying that burden with you, to, to, to submit or surrender yourselves to God. And then he says, resist. Resist the devil because he is constantly after you. I don't mean in a sense of like, you know, Beelzebub is knocking at your door at night and trying to tempt you with something. I mean, the presence of sin and the power of it is after you. The type of temptation Jesus faced is after you. And you will always be presented with an opportunity, always. I mean, if you really tracked, you should track it. How many temptations do you turn down a day? Well, maybe don't track how many you give in to. Just track the ones you turn down. That'll make you feel better. How many, how, many, how many times, and you'll feel this pull of the world's cycle, sin system, wanting to pull you in. How, how can you resist it? You must do it like Jesus did with the Word and with your surrender to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. So we need to draw into God and he will draw near to you. The worst thing we want to do when we are beginning to enter into the cycle, we're taking on water of the world into our boat, is we want to run ourselves. We're not fleeing from sin. We usually will end up fleeing from God. And God's like, no, 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 draw near to, to me. Don't run. Don't hide. Come to me. And then he goes on to say this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart. This is a, this is a deed in heart issue. And like I said, in Leviticus 16, they would, they would, before they could even be in the presence of God, they would go through a cleansing ceremony, and, and it was called the mikvah, and they would, they would be washed, and they'd be cleansed, and it was a whole ceremony, and then they would be able to stand before God. But part of that cleansing, when he says purify, he means this. Pick a lane. One wisdom or the other. One way of life or the other. Don't be, and James hits it a lot, don't be double-minded. This is a single-mindedness. So purify your heart. Purify your actions to a single-mindedness. And he goes on to say, well, he actually just says it right here. Purify your heart, you double-minded. So he calls them that. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. This is not a curse. This is a, may this be how bitter the world tastes to you. That what was so wonderful that was a part of that cycle that gave you so much satisfaction, may that turn sour so you can come to the true wisdom. And then he finished with this last statement. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James listed those all, I think, in reverse. I, I, I know that the beginning of all change is humility. That's where it starts. Listen, I can't, I can't hear what you have to say until I'm humbled to hear what you have to say. Is this not true? I can't learn what I need to learn from my supervisor until I humble myself and say, he probably does know more than me until I humble myself. We, we don't become believers until we humble ourselves before God. And so James is ultimately finishing with the starting piece, which is to humble yourself before God. I tell you what, I, I've seen miraculous behavior change in people when they pray the most dangerous prayer you could ever pray. Do you want to know what it is? Humble my heart. If you want real change in your life, then pray that prayer. God, I need you to humble my heart. I need you to let, let me see what I'm not seeing. But I know I need to be humbled. It's a dangerous prayer. But it will bring about an effect in a change in you that you probably will not even believe. And God is waiting for that moment. It's how powerful it was. Because when you pray a humble prayer towards salvation, it saved you for eternity. So imagine praying that in your everyday life. I'll never forget when I was a Christian, first started, and I, I don't know, um, can I, I'm going to ask for a, a show of hands. Has anybody become a Christian in your, like, adult or later adult life? Just raise your hand. Okay. I, I think it can make a little bit more sense in what I'm going to say than when you were maybe raised in a Christian home, which is a huge blessing and benefit. But when you're, when you're an adult, when I was 19, I noticed a contrast because I was very much living a way that was like, okay, there is no God. He is not real. I'm going to do what I want to do. I was self-destructing quickly. And, but in living a life, I'm ashamed, would be ashamed to tell you today out loud. And then on the other side at salvation, I noticed a major contrast of just a whole different way of thinking of life. I could see the world and its results. Do you remember these? Sometimes we have to go back and remember how bad it was so we can remember that, uh, how good God is so we don't get back into the cycle. But how bad it was, where I was at emotionally, where I was at spiritually. I have to remember, go back and be like, oh my gosh, that was so bad. But when it first happens, the contrast is so clean you just go like, I, anything that is of the world, I do not want that. And, and, but over time, though, 
those, those wisdoms, those two wisdoms, well, I'm not going to live my life that way because that's got me that way. I'm going to live my life this way. But over time, they can kind of get muddled. And I think this is what's happening within this church he's speaking to, and it can happen to a lot of Christians. Over time, you can just become meh, apathetic, just like, meh, it's not that big of a deal. I made a big deal about living kind of strict, you know, this way before, but no, it doesn't really matter. And it can, over time, that wisdom from above can fade. And then the wisdom of the world can win you over in ways and start speaking to your heart again, try to resurrect a behavior in you. But it, it, it's, we become restless. And we forget our first love, like the Bible says. And we become comfortable. And then all of a sudden, we start looking at life without spiritual eyes anymore. And this is when you know you're in trouble, that you have become comfortably numb. You are just looking at the world and it doesn't really, eh, that's not that bad, it's not that bad. But before, remember before, oh, you were so straight edge. You were just like, oh no, I will not live the way. I am a different person. And then it just kind of gets comfortable. You stop looking at things with spiritual eyes and we start looking at the world's wisdom instead of what we're called to do, which is to look through the world's wisdom and see what a broken cycle it is and a lie. And then we start to just see, oh, it's not that bad. And yeah, I did get rewarded in this way. And you know what? I do deserve this. And you know, and then next thing you know, it's important to keep praying for humility, like James says, but all of those things to draw near God, resist Cleanse yourselves, purify yourselves, and humble yourselves. Uh, we, we, we look at the world's wisdom, and, and it can be shiny and pretty because it rewards so quickly. But if you're, if you're a person who, who needs to hear this, it, it will not give you the reward you're ever looking for. And if you've forgotten, please remember, it's a sham. I don't mean technology. I don't mean government. I don't mean any. I'm, I'm talking about that system we know, that cycle that's destructive, that has envy and selfish ambition, and it can destroy any church. It can destroy any culture. It's deadly. James is pressing his church to choose one wisdom, and I think we should be pressed the same way, right? You can't have them both. And James is stressing this, and you must know this, conversion, uh, uh, when you've met Christ, conversion isn't completion. You are constantly fighting. You are constantly trying to continue to adhere to God's wisdom, his ways, his principles, his practices, bearing the fruit he has for you. You are constantly, constantly going to strive for that. It doesn't just poof happen. It's a never-ending process of receiving God's grace in the process as he gives you gifts to sustain you. And it spit, splits the cycle. But the world system, just we can see it all around us. I, I, I love history. I don't know about you. I, history has not changed. Like, I love reading the back end of history that nobody really reads about, the stuff that's not really, like, famously known, but how people lived along the way. History has not changed. The cycle breaks people. And this, this cycle of selfish ambition, limited resources, take for what you can, and who cares about other people, and it's about me, it's not about them, like, that, that, that system still goes on today, and maybe even more so now in our culture, how people are recognized as being somebody who is real and not real, or important or not important. But you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose one of them. If you guys could bow your heads, we're going to close. I have questions for you. What makes you feel real? What makes you feel full in your identity? What gives you security? Is it God's grace, his gifts? Or is it having more, being more in the world's eyes? What gives you true satisfaction? The world will always leave you starving, enough to live and to continue to search but never satisfaction. One mind or one wisdom is the cycle of envy and selfish ambition. The other one is humility and submission to God. These are these two minds and they bear very different fruit. 
So the question is, is, do I choose the wisdom from above? Is that the choice I am making, the wisdom from above? In my everyday life, am I seeking and choosing the wisdom from above? Or am I seeking the wisdom of the world? And if you are choosing the wisdom from above, you will want to begin to submit to God, resist the devil and the world's wisdom, draw near to God, cleanse your actions and your heart to be of one mind. And just remember, every great change always begins in the valley of humility, in the place that's low, where you let God do his best work to build you up. We're going to take communion right now, and there are spots on either side up here, and there's, there's for you guys, anybody in the back, there's a table back there. And at this time, it's, it's, it's always an amazing time to take communion, but this time in particular is going and saying, listen, I would encourage you, thanking Jesus for literally bringing you life, shedding his blood for you, dying on the cross for you, but bringing you out of the world system which you only had one option, but giving you a choice to choose worldly wisdom and thanking him for that. And there's nothing more humble than communion to go, I need you, Jesus, and nothing else. And so that's why we celebrate communion, thanking him, remembering what he did on the cross for you that bought your freedom. So God, we love you and we thank you. I ask that we take these words of James and we walk out of here with a deep conviction and a sense of, uh, of, of evaluating and opening our heart to let you do your work to show us how much water we got in the boat. And God, that you deliver us because there's more grace for us, that you hear our repentance and God, that you restore us and bring us out of that cycle of which we fall prey to, but that we follow your word, your wisdom, and thank you for your word, that it guides and directs us as a lamp into our feet. Help us be a people that model that, live that, and don't just talk it, but do it. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me? Feel free at any point to take communion during these songs, and then Christy will come.